So welcome everyone to Human-Centered Security. Today I have with me Bethany Sonnefeld. She is the design manager at Duo Security. She was previously at Cloudflare, Retail Me Not, and IBM. She is also the founder of Create with Conscience, which is a space dedicated to educating and committing to building healthier technology. This was something that Bethany developed out of her interest of creating healthier balance of technology in her own life. And it's actually the theme of the episode. So we're going to be talking about Create with Conscience. Welcome, Bethany. I am so excited to talk with you. Um, Tell me a little bit more about Create with Conscience and its underlying framework, and why is this something that designers need to think about now? Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for having me on, Heidi. Excited to be here. And I think going back to your first question around the underlying framework, and you mentioned this was something that I kind of just started on my own out of the own interest, my own interest on creating a better balance with the technology in my own life. I was on a trip with a friend and just realized that we were both on our devices so much, right? We were in this beautiful space, like surrounded by a lot of wonderful things and we were on our devices. And so I started thinking about how this has had an effect on us as a society, but also being a product designer, I'm creating some of this technology, right? I haven't had the opportunity to work in social media, uh, mostly fo been focused on e-commerce and cybersecurity. However, I still think there are principles that we can adopt as product designers to do better. A lot of the technology that's being created, especially with this attention crisis that we're in is vying for users' attention, right? We're, we're in a war to try to gain our users' attention, whether that's through push notifications or emails or trying to use deceptive patterns to make people spend more time on a particular app or website. So I think it's really important because technology is not going away. There's always going to be new advances and there's not a lot of regulations right now that exist. And so the point of Create With Conscience is not to um, force people into thinking a certain way. It's mostly just to gain awareness of, hey, we've got a lot of technology that we're using. How can we do better as product designers and even just people working in the tech industry, maybe content designers, engineers, product managers, have, start having conversations about how to be more ethical about what it is that we're building. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of the pieces of Create With Conscience are kind of like questions you can ask yourself. So, you know, we're not we can't necessarily solve the world's problems, but we can start asking questions about what we're doing and what we're producing. And that at least is a first actionable step. Absolutely. And there's always going to be the argument of, well, how does we have to meet our business goals, right? And I think there's a balance that you can find in both where we're not only advocating for our users who are human beings at the end of the day, but also keeping in mind the business considerations. Yeah, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So one of the first questions that I had had for you when we started this discussion about Create with Conscience is, how do you tackle situations where the business's goals might be at odds with what is ethical or what is maybe right for the human using the product? Like what, when those things clash, 
you know, how, what do you do to tackle those types of situations? Yeah, definitely. It, it is tricky because we know that businesses will always prioritize what's good for the business, right? That's how they make money. At the same time, I think as designers and even people working in tech, it is our job to advocate for our end users. We're supposed to have their backs. They trust in us. And so I do believe it's part of our job and our responsibility to create software that's not only usable and functional, but balances out the ethics. And also we, as designers, we have to consider the business goals as well. So I think that finding the right, quote unquote, right solution will take time, but it's really just about starting the conversation instead of just going with the status quo. So that could look something like weighing the consequences of the business decisions. Let's say, you know, your product manager comes to you and says, we want to implement this new push notification that's being sent out to, you know, 30 million users. That's a lot. Do people really need to be bothered by this push notification? Like, think about the implications of that. And, and maybe it is really important that we are notifying them. But I think just starting the conversation and asking those questions about, is this, is this really good for our end users? And putting yourself in, the, in their shoes through user research, through um, you know, qualitative data. There's a lot of resources that we can pull from. Yeah, and I, I also thinking about the unintended consequences of doing in long-term consequences, which I think this is also for security as well. Um, there are a lot of parallels. You know, we we want the instant gratification of, for example, sending a push notification, but is that going to, you know, and I think you gave this example at one point, you know, is that going to erode trust over time? Is that going to annoy our users over time? So you know, the net net is now every, now everyone is annoyed by us and, and maybe doesn't, don't trust us as much because we wanted the instant gratification of the push notification that got them to do, you know, altered their behavior in some way that we were tracking at that particular moment in time. Oh, absolutely. Have you ever had an email that you've unsubscribed from and all of a sudden it comes back into your inbox? Oh That's my gosh. Yes. probably by design, right? And so you, you're exactly right. Things like that can really erode trust with our users. And it's been shown that dark patterns like that can you know, make people have a different opinion on that company based off of you know, the experience that they're having. I think sometimes it's, I know I've felt this way. So you know, maybe other folks can, maybe this resonates with them where you feel kind of helpless, especially if you're working with, you're working in a business that is monetizing people's data is maybe a little bit lax on the privacy side. And you're thinking, you know, I like working here, but how can I make an impact? Like I'm an individual contributor. Like what, what could I possibly do? I'm not in a leader leadership position and you feel sort of helpless. So what, what kind of advice do you give to people in those situations? Yeah, I think, creators honestly have, can have the most impact because they are working on the technology at the ground level. And for me, it's starting with awareness and education. There, I would say over the past five years, there's been a lot more resources on ethical design, ethical technology. So 
just poke around. Um, there are, there's a foundation called the Center for Humane Technology that was uh, founded by Tristan Harris, who's kind of like, I, I refer to him as the godfather of ethical design. Um, he was featured in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. So that there's actually a free course on Center for Humane Design around for technologists on how to create healthier, better technology. There's also, um, I want to shout out John Yablinski. He has a site called Humane by Design. Great set of principles around how to do better as a designer, like really tangible things instead of using notifications, you know, consider using this as well. And then there's also a site that I love called Ethical OS, and they've done the hard work for you where they've identified certain risk zones based off of, is this affecting um, addiction and the dopamine economy versus like, is this, does this have to do with ethical AI? So there's a lot of resources out there. And I think it starts with just gaining an understanding of why technology is designed the way, to, the way that it is. And then sharing that with your team, right? Speak up and make your voice heard about maybe this isn't the right way to do something um, and work with your team to develop some sort of playbook or like a set of values that you can refer to. I'm a huge systems thinker. And so I, I like to say things work great when there is systems in place because you can point to that whenever you get into a sticky situation. Yeah, I love that advice. So we talked a little bit about um, why this is important, some of the roadblocks that perceived roadblocks um, in terms of like what you can do if you're at an individual contr contributor level. So let's like, get into the meat of, of what Create With Conscience is and like how can we actually start practicing you know, some of the principles that, that we've alluded to so far. So let's like dive a little bit deeper. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was like unintended consequences and, and unhealthy behaviors. So can you speak a little bit to that and how we should be thinking about it? Definitely. So I mentioned earlier that our users at the end of the day are human beings. And I think that's something we forget working in tech, right? We get in our bubble, we're doing our user research, and we're so focused on the data that we forget to just relate to these individuals as human beings. Human beings are very complex. We have lots of emotions. And so, and some of those things can be unhealthy. People can use technology in unhealthy ways that we may not always anticipate, right? We've heard tons and tons of stories of people misusing social media, bullying happening. Um, and so I think it starts with, I love using an exercise called Maslow's mirror. And that is essentially just a way for you to map out either a specific feature and understand what the good and bad consequences could be from that. And I recommend doing this with your team instead of as an individual, because you need to have diverse, a diverse set of individuals that can contribute to that. If it's just me working on the Maslow's mirror, there are experiences that I haven't had or can relate to that my view is going to be very focused. So I recommend doing this exercise with a larger group, maybe um, three to four to start and then you know, continuing to bring folks in. But this can help us consider things like depression, 
you know, how could someone with a mental illness use your product to hurt themselves potentially? There's also addiction. Addiction presents itself in many different forms, you know, screen time, um, but also how could, how could your product promote long-term use? Consider those things. And then also behaviors like exclusion. Obviously we don't build products to be uh, exclusive, but unfortunately that does happen. And so think about how could your product be used to exclude, exclude certain groups and really consider the implications of all the different spectrum of emotions that people may be experiencing and how your product or technology could potentially contribute to that. And what are your recommendations on how, like how to actually approach this? So is this a workshop? Have you prepared things ahead of time? Like, what does it look like? Yeah. So I think it starts with just getting an understanding, obviously, of who you're designing for and mm-hmm. then continuing to dig deeper. Something I see a lot in design and technology is we collect a certain set of data based off of something we're trying to prove or disprove. And then that's it. Everyone drops it. We get the answer we need. Continue to dig deeper into what people are saying when you're doing these usability studies or user research. Get to know these individuals if you can on an intimate level. I realize that's not always the case in different companies, but spend time with them and talk to your team about what you're hearing. And I think that just remembering to practice empathy at a deeper level and being vulnerable can really help uncover some of those questions that we may have about you know, the unintended or harmful behaviors. Yeah. And when you're bringing the rest of your teammates into, it's kind of sounds like you're talking about like a brainstorming session of like, um, how could this be misused? What are some of the unintended consequences? What are some of the potentially unhealthy behaviors associated with it? So are these like questions that you pose to your teammates or I'm just trying to drill deep, deeper into like how, how you would actually get to some of the, the issues? Definitely. So it starts by just pulling from that question bank. Um, I have them listed in the set of principles. Those are kind of my go-to, but What I also love is when you start those conversations, then what I find is that the group starts to speak up. What about, what about this? Could someone potentially, um, you know, use this in a harmful way? There's a lot of different wormholes that people can get into with your product. And I think especially in security, we're trained to think of how could a, a bad actor or a hacker, you know, you potentially get into our our software and and cause some sort of breach. So I do think we're already in that mindset in terms of working in security. However, it is very different because if you're designing for social media or e-commerce, there are different ways that people are using your product versus in security. So I think it starts with asking those questions, asking, doing the Maslow's mirror exercise And then just letting the group kind of have a discussion and bringing that to, if you have any sort of legal team, if you have any sort of security review, bring those folks in as well. There, like I said, there's a lot of edge cases, we call them, that aren't always considered. And and what I see 
oftentimes is those are kind of pushed to the side. Oh, we'll consider that later. But there are a lot of consequences if we don't design for that today. Yeah. Can you walk us through an example just so we can kind of visualize what this might look like? I'm thinking about if you're building a new platform for messaging, if we use that as a pretty vague example, a lot of positive things can happen from that, right? Folks and friends could send messages to each other. They could share different parts of their lives. And then if we think of the bad side, bullying can happen. Um, explicit messages could happen, blackmail. These are all things that are kind of no-brainers for us today because they've already happened. But five, 10 years ago, no one was thinking about this. No one was thinking about some digital portal that someone someone anonymous could send you uh, an explicit message that could harm you, right? And so it is tricky because we can't always anticipate the future and, and how this technology is going to change. But if we think about an example like that, and we just break it down in terms of, you know, each level, like what, what could happen at this level? Is there, is there a way that someone could duplicate this app and start making money off of it? And there's different, a lot of different situations to consider. So I think it's trying to get in the mindset Unfortunately, sometimes you have to do this, but get in the mindset of someone who may not have the best intentions. Yeah. And then how do you prioritize what to tackle? Right. So if you have a list of like a hundred things, you know, maybe you can't do them all, but you know, what, how do you decide what is really worth tackling first and foremost? Yeah. So I like building systems in place to point to. So for example, you could have a ranking of different, how your different feature sets fit into like an ethics uh, grading. So for example, similar to the accessibility WCAG guidelines where there's double A, triple A, I would love to develop something that could be used by everyone in the technology world where, you know, AA has specific ethical standards that are considered good. But then there's the question of who, who is building those, right? Who's kind of in, in charge of controlling them. But I think if you could point to that and say, okay, this is a very high priority for us as a team because we're not meeting the standards. And so in order to ship this and feel safe and comfortable and confident as a business in what we're building, then it needs to meet, you know, the standard level. And then maybe six months down the road or a year down the road, we can work towards the, the highest level incrementally. Yeah, that's great advice. And I realized we kind of glossed over the, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about what you mentioned, like developing a playbook or a set of values. Um, that sounds awesome, but also like what, what does that mean exactly? And how would you go about doing that? Yeah. So I think for me, it starts as, okay, we have a set of principles. That's a great start. If you can work with your team to develop those and just ask them, what do we, how do we want to build products going forward? How do we want to make this experience great for our users? Not only in terms of actual UX and visual, but also make it a safe place for people. Make, 
make your product something that people love using and don't feel bothered by, right? And so you can have some sort of principles to go by. You can use the risk zones that were developed by the ethical OS committee. Think about things like that to start. And if you want to take it a level deeper, you could always build out different patterns that are considered ethical by your standards. So for example, you could say, okay, we know our product has push notifications. Is there an alternate pattern that we could use instead? I kind of have a gripe with UX design and product design because I, I think that as things have become systematized over the years, it's been great for us in terms of being able to deliver a more consistent experience for our users. But I also think sometimes we're not thinking outside of the box and mm -hmm. designers are creative people, right? That's, that's kind of in our blood. And so I would really encourage folks to challenge the status quo. Things are done a certain way, but could we add our own flair on it, right? Think outside of the box and try to build in those systems early on, whether it's just a set of principles or whether it's down to the nitty gritty of we're, we're using this pattern and we've established this language, which we feel is ethically sound. Yeah, it sounds like what you're getting at is to, I completely agree with, we tend to fall into the same patterns and like what's worked before, like should work again. And we don't think outside the box. And it also sounds like what you're saying is, if you are going to do something, at least do it with intention, at least say, this is why we're doing it, you know, and we're moving forward in this way. And you have thought through why, what the unintended consequences are. You've thought through some of those unhealthy behaviors. Um, but I, I was wondering if you had an example of a team or maybe yourself, you know, a personal example of where you have thought outside the box, where you said, you know what, this maybe this just doesn't serve us that well. And could we do it differently? Definitely. I keep going back to push notifications because yeah. it's what I'm working on right now <laughs> and it's top of mind, but, and they do get a, a bad rap because I think companies have abused them to just it, capture users' attention. But in security, it's tricky because we actually need people to pay attention uh, to what we're sending them. So something that, we've struggled with right now at my company is our users do not spend a lot of time in our app and that's okay. However, there are critical issues that we need to bring to their attention in terms of their security and keeping them safe. And so we've been trying to think of ways that we could not only capture their attention, but allow them to understand what's happening and then take action and move on with their day. Mm -hmm. And so that brings you back to the default that was suggested was let's send them a push notification. And we said, okay, that's one solution. Is there any other way to message to our users in our app? So I encourage the team to take a step back and instead of driving towards a solution and saying, we should use a banner, we should use a push notification. Let's think about what we're trying to do again. What problem are we trying to solve? And don't pigeonhole ourselves into a specific UX pattern or visual style. Now we have established ways in the app that we can message to our users. 
they haven't been successful. And so right now we're doing a lot of studies, not, e not even showing folks designs, just talking to them about how do you like to be notified? What's your personal preference? And, and that will differ for every user, but I think when you get that aggregate set of data, you can start to consider, you know, three out of six people said they like push notifications. That's, that's a good sign. But just continue to gather that data and then, again, be creative and think outside of the box. You don't always have to use the native patterns that are available to you. Um, so that's something that we're, is ongoing right now, and, and it's a conversation that we're having. Yeah, that's a super interesting example. And it makes me think, and maybe this is what you were alluding to, but it makes me think of, um, I know Microsoft had, I don't know if they've launched it yet or if it's in beta right now, but they, because people are so inclined to just say yes, like a push notification, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. What threat actors will try to do is bombard users with, push notifications. And finally the user's just like, yes, like go away, please. Just like, let me go on with my day. And they're like, awesome. <laughs> now I have access to your account. Cause you just, you know, you just allowed me. Um, so what they are doing is in addition to the push notification, you have to enter a two digit code to, to truly authenticate. It's like one extra step. You know, but it's one of the, and I'm not saying that it's, I think it's very interesting. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. Um, it does introduce another step that the push notification was supposed to alleviate. So it is kind of interesting, but it just goes to show you that what, what you're trying to, what you're trying to accomplish can often, often has unintended consequences, right? You're trying to make it easier for the user, but then it gets exploited by a threat actor and they're using it against you. Um, and what you mentioned made me think about just kind of like security messages or error messages in general, where you're, you actually want the user to sit and read it and take some action on it and not just say yes or proceed or, you know, whatever, and potentially, which would potentially have some security impl implications. And how do you design that? Like, it seems... I think sometimes as designers, we just are like, oh, a, a warning message or like a login screen, like, you know, so boring, but there's so much thought that has to go into that. So I think that's a great example of what you brought up. And I applaud your team for really digging deeper and doing the research. Thank you for saying that. It's, it's not an easy problem to solve. And like I said earlier, we're in such an attention crisis. And so we know that users are not reading, they're not spending time on apps. To your point, they're just kind of clicking through to you know, get to their destination as quick as possible. And sometimes the, I mean, I, the, I come across this, you know, as someone who thinks about security all the time, sometimes I get messages that I'm, you know, like, what exactly does this mean? Or like, what am I agreeing to? And if I can't figure it out, like I, guarantee you the average person can't figure it out, you know, and especially on mobile phones where there's a very small window, you know, which however many characters you can fit on that. And, you know, the poor copywriter who's trying to write that error message, you know, or that prompt, I don't know. It's a, it's a very, very difficult problem to solve for. Yes. We, we love content designers and copywriters. <laughs> they are our best friends. <laughs> 
Um, so let's talk a little bit about iteration. So as we just, we literally just talked about this, the fact that you cannot foresee everything, you can't account for everything. And, uh, you know, in security and specifically, when threat actors modify their tactics, then all of a sudden you need to change course as well. You know, that changes things for you and your product and your end users. So knowing these things, you know, we're not, things aren't static, technology changes, uh, laws change, threat actors change. What can we, how can we best iterate? What are some of the things that we should be thinking about? First, start off with understanding that humans are, users are humans, they're complex, and it's literally impossible to predict every scenario that could happen. That was something I struggled with early on was I would get frustrated at myself when something unintended happened. And for me, I was like, why didn't I consider that earlier? Like we could have designed a better way to do this. So understand that you're not going to be able to cover every or predict, you know, every type of use case. I think it, human error, I see, I see people point to this a lot in terms of, you know, oh, our users didn't know, or they didn't read. Human error happens because of poor system design. So Helen Patton, she wrote a really great article about, you know, the human error debacle. And she talks about with a phishing email, we always point to, well, the employees clicked on it, right? So it's, it's their fault. But think about how did that email get through to begin with? Where were those security controls and how effective were they? And what is the organizational culture? Have we educated our employees on IT systems and phishing emails? Think about all of those different things and what trainings that we've implemented to help predict that. So notice that two things, humans are complex. We can't predict everything. Don't point to human error as an excuse in terms of, you know, why the system failed. And then three, just continuing to keep your ear to the ground and you have to reassess. There's been plenty of times that we've done some iterative feedback and things have come back to us and it's not been the result that we hoped for. And sometimes it feels like a fire and I'd recommend don't try to solve for that in that moment. Do what you can as a company to put a Band-Aid over it, which I know is not always the recommended solution, but I, I want to carve out more time to consider that use case in more detail. Instead of just slapping the Band-Aid on and then moving on, make sure that you come back to this and think about whatever you're building, whether it's a feature or a product, Think about it holistically. Like this is something that's being added to your plate in terms of how you iterate. So just look at it as an opportunity to do better. And you know that this is something that may come up in the future. Yeah, you made me think of, I don't know if the person who wrote the article that you referenced talked about this, but there are two folks uh, who, human factors folks who have written great books. One is James Reason. The other is Sydney Decker. And they talk about safety, like specifically looking at when a plane crash is attributed to human error and how that is not necessarily the most productive way to look at it. Because just as you said, 
there are layers above that going up to the organization and going, you know, very systems level um, holistic view that allowed that error to happen. And unless you address the root cause at that very high level, it's really, you're really not going to fix the problem. So I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think sometimes we can, we just default to say, you know, users are stupid or it was just human, human error, but that's not a productive conversation. And that's not going to get you to the root cause. It's just, um, it's just, a, it's a, it's a lazy way of, you know, attributing what, what has happened and, and allows you and the organization to not take, um, to not accept the blame, right. For, for maybe things that you could have done better. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Absolutely. I think it's easy to one place blame and then to try to come up with an immediate solution. Just take time to think through how this happened, what we can do better next time. Yeah. I I love that sentiment. Um, And it almost sounds like you're talking about like modeling human behavior. Um, it makes me think of threat modeling. That's something that I've been thinking about recently. How do you, maybe this is a silly question. How do you like document some of these like quote unquote models that, that you are creating and, and how do you share that with your other team members? So you have a shared understanding. Yeah, it's important because I think especially working remotely, what I found is that documentation, you can spend a lot of time on it, And then all of a sudden it just goes in the cloud and goes to die. So socializing, whatever you create with your playbook, your set of principles, socializing that workout, you don't need to spend a lot of time creating some sort of beautiful visual or, you know, slide deck or something, just kind of starting the conversation and talking through what are our company's set of ethical values, asking that question. I'm not sure a lot of people would have an answer to that. And just talking through either at an all hands or with your team, sharing out in some sort of format that can be shared and digested really easy, I think is the crucial part because you want folks to understand what you're trying to say and feel compelled to, don't want to say sign up, but like say that they're interested in this effort and they support you in that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you said. Like if if you were new to an organization and even I guess even if you're not new, if you're just starting to think about some of this stuff and you kind of raise your hand and say like, can someone point me to our ethical playbook or our, our set of values? And if there are crickets and, and no one has an answer, maybe that's an opportunity for you and your colleagues to band together to start something. Absolutely. And your comment made me think about, we could even use the company values as a starting point and then dig deeper into what that means from an ethical tech perspective. So for example, one of my company's values is being kinder than necessary. So I've thought about in what ways could we use that to, as we're building software and products, right? Being kinder than necessary to me means not bombarding people with unnecessary information for the purpose of the business goals, right? So maybe use that as a starting point. Every company at least should have a set of values. Try to expand on those and put your own spin on it from an ethical perspective. 
I love that. I think that is fantastic advice. And I love that sentiment, be kinder than necessary. That's fantastic. So on, on that same note, do you have any additional words of wisdom or, or pieces of advice for our listeners? One thing I'll say is the ethical tech and design side of things is just starting to become a conversation. So I don't want folks to feel like it's something I have no idea about, or I'm not part of the you know ethical design community. Really, Create with Conscience just started with me researching and reading some books and just feeling compelled to share something out. And so I would say, don't feel overwhelmed by all of the resources out there and feeling like you can't be a part of the conversation because there is no there is no set of guidelines. There are no regulations right now. So just do your best to educate yourself and think about your own practices with technology. And, you know, if you're using a piece of software and you feel shitty afterwards, think about someone designed it in that way. And think about all of the potentially harmful technology that exists out there today. And I hope that listeners will feel compelled to take action, whether that action means asking your product team about your ethical playbook or your set of values, or maybe it's just doing something on your own time to gain a little bit more knowledge about this space. Yeah, that's great advice. Awesome. So if folks want to learn more about Create With Conscience, you can go to createwithconscience.com. That is the website. Um, any other parting words for our listeners before we wrap up? Last thing I'll say, I think about this a lot. When I entered the corporate America field in terms of design, I think everyone thought designers can save the world. And there was a point in time where I was a little bit jaded and I didn't think that anymore. I still feel that way deep down. And this is part of why Create With Conscience is important to me because I think we're entering a new era of technology where people are becoming more aware. So designers, technologists, whoever you are, like you matter and you have a purpose and what you're doing is very meaningful. That is awesome. Thank you, Bethany. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Heidi.